Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Colony Drop, your favorite Gundam podcast. My name is Isaac. And my name is Brian. And today we are talking about Mobile Suit Gundam, the 8th MS team. Ah, the 8th MS team. Brian, what is the 8th MS team? The 8th MS team has three different forms of media. So what people would normally think of as the 8th MS team is the 12-episode OVA series that came out from 1996 to 1999. And when I looked that up, I did not realize that the episodes came out that far apart. Did you Did you know that? No, no. That's crazy. That's, that is... God, the patience. <laughs> the patience <laughs> the fans must have had, right? But yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it is OVA, so it does have pretty high quality animation uh for the time so generally ovas have a sort of extended release period and i guess that's why but yeah i I guess i hadn't internalized that until looking it up that it it took place (laughs) over three years Um, it was a different world back then brian things (laughs) move slower the world was a more stable calm place (laughs) yeah 2020 had not reared its ugly head yet yes yes we didn't have this uh the apocalypse was far away Yeah, and so there was a compilation slash tie-in movie called Miller's Report. Uh, that came out in 1998, which is in the middle of the OVA release period. I didn't know that either uh, until going back and looking at it, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, and then finally, the latest thing to come out for 8th MS Team was a short film. It's about 10 minutes long, I think. Um, it's called Battle in Three Dimensions, and it came out in 2013. It was part of the Blu-ray box set for 8th MS Team. <laughs> aren't all battles in three dimensions <laughs> maybe this one was a, <laughs> that's a science joke for all you scientists out there <laughs> what what if you do battle in like pong or something well there you go yeah eight bit gundam right <laughs> give our listeners a, a, a brief synopsis of what you think this show is about isaac for those of you who aren't familiar the eighth ms team is a gundam side story it might be the definition of a good gundam side story right because we have a team of mobile suits on a mission. All right, they're in the jungles of uh, they're in Earth. All right, we're not in the colonies or space for once. They're in Earth. They're in the jungles. It's kind of, I feel like maybe the design team took a lot from maybe Vietnam or something, or just Japan's history of fighting in like the jungles of Asia. Um, oh, I totally agree. This to yeah. me felt like they were aiming for Vietnam War film. Yeah, one hundred percent. Because this takes place, I guess, after the big Vietnam movies, right? Like Born on the Fourth of July and Platoon and Apocalypse Now and all that. So maybe the whole production team watched them and was inspired. Like, hey, what if we had Gundams? But it was like the Vietnam War, the jungle warfare, guerrilla warfare. And that's pretty much what this is. This might be the only instance in Gundam where we see, you know, guerrillas fighting during the one-year war, I think. At least with this effectiveness. Yeah, I agree. And I think that leads us right into the plot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on the plot? I mean, like you said, this really felt like a war film, a Vietnam War film to me. Uh And I loved that it was so focused. We were more concerned with this one team and just their mission, and that that mission proceeded on a I would say a very brisk pace uh, throughout the show. All the episodes felt short to me, and that's generally a good thing, uh, which means I wasn't really bored. Uh, at any time while watching it. So I, I really enjoyed that like sort of steady through line of we must find the obsolus, uh, this, you know, this, and I'll, I'll let you tell our listeners what the obsolus is. Cause I, I know you're a big obsolus <laughs> fan. <laughs> oh, the obsolus. All right. 
So the main sort of looming threat throughout the whole series is something called Opsilus. It's a mobile armor, and you know I'm sure a lot of fans that maybe didn't see the show um, haven't seen it yet might roll their eyes like, "Oh God, another mobile armor! Really? It's going <laughs> to fly around, shoot some you know sparklers, and then a, a Gundam's going to slap it out of the sky." <laughs> Hang on, <laughs> this is like the the pinnacle of of one year war mobile armor technology, I think, because it was designed to destroy Jabral in two shots, pretty much, possibly one. There's this great episode, I think, where Federation officers are like watching a simulation of what the attack would be like if Opsilus gets operational and heads to Jabrow, and it's pretty hellish. Opsilus literally turns uh, Jabrow into like molten magma <laughs> in <laughs> seconds. So <laughs> anything that the Opsilus looks at, it pretty much just melts with with its, I don't know, beam cannon or whatever you want to call that thing. That Felt thing was it, incredible. Yeah. I love that thing. The simulation you're talking about, I think, is before... It's the beginning of the two-part episode finale, I believe. They show you that simulation, and then I think the uh, intro hits or whatever, and you think for a little few seconds that, that Jabra was actually destroyed, and you're like, oh, you know, oh, crap. But then they say, in that simulation. But that is the simulation that convinces the Federation that they must go hunt down the Opsilus once and for all. To the credit of the, the design team of the Opsilus... When they designed the big Zom, it took like a team of people to get running. But the uh, <laughs> Opsilus can be run by like one person. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, how, where do you think the Opsilus falls in terms of like mobile armor tiers? You know, because in the original series, we had a lot of those sort of like new type, uh, you know, piloted yeah. mobile armors. We had the, the Brow Bro or whatever, Lala's Elmith, Shar Ziyong, the big Zom. Where do you feel the Opsilus is on this? I'm going to stick to what I said. The Opsilus is the peak. And I'm going to say that because I feel like it's better than the Big Zom because you only need one pilot. And also, for all its power, the Big Zom was not sent to take out Jabra, right? It was stuck on Solomon, probably because of Dozel. But um, yeah, it had a, a comparable cannon on its own. But man, I just think the Opsilus is so much better. I definitely think the Opsilus takes it in terms of firepower. That cannon thing was pretty ridiculous. Like even in that probably the second part of that two-parter at the end, parts of its beam kind of like glanced off a few GMs, and even though it like just kind of grazed them, it it just melted them, you know, basically in half wherever yeah. they got grazed, which was pretty cool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, pretty hot, I guess. But zing. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I loved about this show was because it. I think they were going for a war film. They really highlighted sort of the the difficulty of combat and the cruelty of combat. So, like, on the difficulty side, I loved how they had... They just always had a really hard time communicating, like, in the jungle. Um, you know, they couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they had to use infrared and night vision. And I thought that gave us a really good <laughs> plot device of the, of the hover truck. Yeah. Um, which is really fun. I don't know. What did, what did you think about about how the combat was done in this show? What I really liked about it was how... It almost makes Zeon have logic for why they painted the Zaku's green. Like, <laughs> you know, like they were designing them and they're like, okay, when we invade Earth, uh, most of, half of Earth is blue, the other half is green. So we're going to need our Zaku's to be green. <laughs> and it really pays off when you're in the jungle because you you pretty much just have to look for the mono-eye, right? That's a, you're looking for a needle in a haystack, a tiny dot in the middle of a jungle. 
So yeah, that made that was great, and I liked how close quarters the combat got a lot, and of course the ending was probably the the pinnacle of combat. Man, they show had so many good things. It was almost like it almost feels like a video game, and I mean that in a good way because you know we have like sub bosses they kind of fight as they're leveling up right and um as they're working as a team they're like a party like in an rpg and then yep. they finally get to the end like the main boss and all that yeah i really like the combat brian it was very well done in a way that we don't normally see it was less less almost jumping around that the gundam does a lot in the original series i totally agree and, and i felt like there were two types of combat in this show there was the close quarters in the jungle like down in the dirt combat where, you know, like you said, Amuro was taking the original Gundam and he was jumping all the time and doing these fancy maneuvers. Here, the mobile suits are, you know, they're subject to Earth's gravity. They can't quite fly as easily. And sometimes they would kind of just fall over. And I thought that was much more realistic, um, probably, than what we've seen in other series. Where, like, you know, Shiro, I think he... Shiro's from space, obviously, um, the main character, Shiro Mata. And I think it's in episode two... Yeah, it's gotta be too. It's just when he's down on Earth already, and he, you know, he he's all gung ho about chasing down the Zaku, and so he goes after the Zaku in the dark. I guess he's not really been on Earth before, and and, and that's not a good idea in the jungle because one, it's dark, and so he turns on his light, which is a terrible idea because now now the enemies can see where he is because he has the light <laughs> on, and then, and then he's like rushing forward in his enormous Gundam, and you know he trips on like a bog or or like some trees, and he yeah. falls over, and you know he takes a lot of machine gun fire, so I just felt like it felt real a much more uh, realistic war scenario. Yeah, as as realistic as you can get with yeah, giant fair, robots and fair. hover tanks. And <laughs> Are you saying that. that hover tank isn't real? <laughs> I'm saying, <laughs> who knows what goes on at Area 51, <laughs> but I'm going to say the public has not seen live hover tanks yet. <laughs> so I thought that was the, the close quarters combat, but then I felt like anytime the ops list was involved, they went full on big set piece uh, like action. Yeah action scene and it was great every time the opsilus showed up you know you had the when they when they try to take out the opsilus in that like desert valley-ish kind of area where they oh, wait for yeah. it for days that was great you know shiro flies onto the opsilus to try to stop it when he realizes that aina is the pilot and it flies away with him on it and then a lot of the action takes place when they're still in the air like shiro is was fearless he opened his cockpit while his gundam was hanging on to the obsolus in you know thousands of feet up in the air just hovering you know mid-flight that was it was crazy and during that uh, also during that fight like they knew the obsolus was there because it melted like a big portion of the mountainside or the, or the valley yeah. side and you could t- and see the glass i thought that was a really cool way to show it yeah i like how they got a little scientific they're like well this is natural you know it's glass so clearly something fired here and some type of beam weapon this isn't you know made by a shell or anything like that they and piece then, together the the mystery of the obsolus <laughs> <laughs> yeah i really like that about the show yeah some other good action scenes were do you remember the, when the eighth team parachuted out i think so yeah manofsky particles are really on display there because the eighth team parachuted out of this transport and when they cleared the clouds they were right on top of a gal <laughs> do you remember that and then yeah. you know, all hell broke loose <laughs> the gun um, started shooting at them right like <laughs> it, well it did but then shiro landed on it and stuck his like gun into the into it and told him you know don't shoot anymore or i will you know, I'll I'll kill us both. <laughs> yeah pretty much and then i think that two-parter towards the end of the show it's 
I think that's definitely in the top 10 episodes of Gundam for sure across all series. Given the circumstance, given how they, you know, choreographed those fights um, and everything that happened, I, do you do you really enjoy that two-parter as well? You're in, you're talking about the fight with Nor- the final fight, I should say, with Norris Packard. Yeah, the fight with Norris in, yeah. is in part one, I think, right? And then the Obsolus is in part two. And we talked about the fight with Norris in quite detail in our uh, top five mobile suit um, episode. So definitely check that out if you want to hear more about it. But just the, I thought that was a great fight because it had a, a clear story that the audience can follow. It wasn't just people randomly shooting each other because they're at war. Like there was a goal for the Xeon pilot. He, you know, Norris, he, he comes out in this goof custom, which is one of my favorite suits uh, in the show. And he comes out of this elevator, he lands on a building and he's, his uh, his goof is in front of the sun and it just forms this like super intimidating <laughs> silhouette and he raises his sword and then his mono eye turns on and you're just like oh man the main cast is screwed like they're they're about to get lit up <laughs> not as screwed as a gun tank pilot uh... <laughs> yeah what were they doing so close <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess they had no. to be in, ra- in firing range to yeah. not miss. I don't you know. You know what? I'm going to assume Ryer was in command of their positioning. That's why he, you know, <laughs> who cares where they're positioned? <laughs> yeah. They're just meat pawns in in the overall scheme. Yeah. Those were two great episodes. God, the, I love the standoff with the Absolus and then the whole failed negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. This series is... <sighs> I can't really say more than it being such a great definition of a side story. You get everything here. You get like great characters, great mobile suit combat, a really endearing story. You know, the, the romance of it, it does pick up kind of quickly at the beginning. You just kind of have to go with it um, if you're not too into having romance in your Gundam stories. But um, the series overall, I think it's pretty great. And for a bite-sized side story with great mobile armors and great combat, it's this, this is pretty high up there. I agree. I think the romance got started pretty quickly in episode one, but I think by the end yeah. I bought it. Um, I think I was on board. I think they sold it to us reasonably well over the course of the show. I think it's better than a lot of the romances in Gundam. Yeah. You know, yeah. like 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 Ko and Nina from Double Eighty Three. That one I never really got. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Double Eighty Three. Uh, I feel like they had a lot more episodes to flesh it out. Definitely. But, um, yeah, it, it wasn't a perfect series. <laughs> um, speaking of not being perfect, what what did you not like about this series? Is there anything that you were sort of like, eh, at, at least on the fence about, or just you flat out saw and you were like, that, that didn't really make sense, you didn't enjoy it too much? I don't know. I couldn't think of anything that I really disliked. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I was okay with pretty much everything. What 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 didn't you, didn't you like? Well, aside from the the romance really like kind of launching in episode one and, you know, you just go along with it. I feel like sometimes it lagged a little bit when they were like in the villages, you know, of, of the Southeast Asia, you know, the, the whole uh, Mikkel and Elidor being uh, captured by the Xeon. That kind of dragged a little bit, but did get kind of funny. Kiki was occasionally annoying, but, you know, sometimes you need that character, right? That type of character always shows up a lot in... A lot of Japanese shows, I feel, right? The kind of spunky, sassy girl that's a bit <laughs> mischievous, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. Couldn't I be could, on Z side. So. <laughs> I could definitely see that on the, the romance. I guess the one thing I didn't like about the romance was maybe like midway through the show, whenever whenever they were stuck in like the snow area 
or with all the wind. Oh yeah. Uh, where where uh, Shura was about to die and he yelled, "I love you." Uh, and really, they had only really met like twice at that point. So that is, yeah. this is pretty fast. But I, I guess for the sake of the story, we we did have to move that fast. It was already midway through the through the show. Yeah. And the Kiki stuff, like I, I feel like all the development of of Kiki actually paid off at the end of the show because we eventually did go to their village after Shiro is like you know under investigation for desertion, and he tells the team to go save Kiki's village anyway, and they go there. And that episode is actually one of the like more brutal ones of the show because Kiki's dad gets killed. Oh God. Um, by that Zaku <laughs> taking off from the, like the thruster. Yeah. Uh, that's it, crazy. Yeah. It, it essentially, you know, ignites his house <laughs> uh, while he's in it. It's the same episode where the Zeon pilot who started the conflict, the village wasn't trying to fight those Zeon soldiers. If you remember the, the guy kind of, egged them on and then he dropped kiki on the house and then when he dropped kiki on the house the the dad was like oh no you know don't escalate it but then the one villager was like you're dead and he shot a rpg into the guy's open cockpit like that guy (laughs) he must have immediately regretted his decision to drop kiki when he saw that rpg coming in which decision the stupidity of having your cockpit open in a combat (laughs) zone or or angering people that just fed you (laughs) Probably both. I mean, I guess I guess he was trying to get his dinner, but yeah, probably not the smartest decision. Probably should have closed it immediately. But yeah, and then in that same episode, the female Xeon pilot who, you know, was trying to de-escalate the situation, she ended up using anti-personnel weaponry on the villagers as, as they rushed her, and Shira was like, no, don't go, and she launched those things in the air, and they just rained down, like the shrapnel rained down upon them, and they just... Yeah. That, that was pretty brutal. Like, they all had holes in them afterwards. It was... That's when I was like, yeah, this is a Vietnam show. <laughs> All right, you got me there. It's Vietnam. <laughs> it's Vietnam but, with Gundam. Yeah. So I think if they hadn't had that episode, I'd probably agree with you on Kiki. Yeah, that was such a brutal scene. But, I mean, that's Zeon, right? Like, you got the human people mixed up with pretty inhuman people at the same time. So, well. What did you think about the epilogue? You know what? I'm going to also put that in things I didn't really care for and didn't think were done too well. That might be the weakest part of the series, actually. You know, the, the romance, go along with it. Um, you know, parts of this where the story does get slow. Yeah, things like that need to happen, right? So you can kind of breathe and then, you know, there needs to be a pause before action and events changing. But, um, yeah, I really didn't like the whole Mikhail looking for them and then finding these children and then the sort of mystery that, you know, one of them was Aina, but she really wasn't. It it was, it, I wouldn't say I felt shoehorned, but it just felt like such a bizarre thing to add to it. Maybe I'm understanding or I'm misunderstanding what the intention was. I'm not really sure why they wanted to shoehorn that in when I almost felt like seeing Shiro and Aina would have been uh, so much better. You could have to do a whole episode of just them reuniting with the, uh, you know, Mikkel or maybe some other characters and just talking things over now that the war's over. Yeah, I, I definitely understand anyone who has that opinion. I actually enjoyed the epilogue, but I I feel like that's because I definitely viewed it as an epilogue. Like, if you go into that episode thinking you're going to get something better than the two-parter that you just watched, you know, you're definitely going to be disappointed. I mean, I, I thought there were a lot of good, subtle callbacks to the, like, original series in this show, and I would put the epilogue on that list. In the beginning, you had the Garen speech in the background while Guineas was 
talking to someone. And Guineas has like an embarrassingly large picture of Degwin behind him at one point. <laughs> um, excuse we had... <laughs> me, excuse me, Brian. There's no such thing as a picture of Degwin that's too large. All right. <laughs> well, it was very large, but he it still did not capture his entire massive frame uh, in, in the picture. Yeah, there is not a tapestry large enough to <laughs> to do that. Um, we had the gassing in the colony scene. We got to see gun parries yeah. and Medea's Kamusai. And then in the epilogue, we got to we got to hear about the Flanagan Institute, you know, where they developed the the kids into the into the cyber new types. So that's what these kids essentially were. You know, they were being experimented on uh, by Xeon. So I definitely think it was odd. It certainly wasn't what I was expecting. But for what it was, I enjoyed it. But I, I would respect anyone's opinion who, who said it felt like maybe it didn't belong. It definitely was a little bit out there. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the creators of the show wanted to sort of put a spotlight on, you know, the, the ramifications of war and how children get left behind from uh, from combat and they're also victims of the war. But just didn't the landing really with that final episode. It gave us characters we hadn't seen before, but at least we saw closure, right, with 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 Aina and uh, Shiro. Yeah. Well, speaking of Aina and Shiro, so why don't we talk about the characters in this show? Let's start with our eighth team. The name yeah. of the show. So, <laughs> who is our commander of the eighth team? The commander is Shiro Amada, Brian. He's Shiro Amada. He's <laughs> a very young commander and initially not well liked by his team. Well, I wouldn't say not well liked, but not completely trusted. Not not fully uh, earning their respect yet because he's new, he's young, and they're on a new mission. I think his his whole character is encapsulated in episode one when he says uh, the line, we can't just stand by and watch our guys get killed. And that's when he, he requests permission to go use the ball uh, to save Sanders out in space, you know, who's, who's sitting a sitting duck in a, in a damaged GM, kind of being hunted by Aina in a experimental Zaku. Um, and that's kind of what he does throughout the rest of the show. You know, whenever there's people who need help, he, he goes and helps them, uh, regardless if it gets him uh, into a terrible situation uh, <laughs> one after the other. He, he's very resourceful. He thinks to use those missiles in space as like yeah. a distress beacon uh, when mm-hmm. they don't have anything else. He melts the snow with the beam saber, you know, when they're stuck in the snow and he's he's got frostbitten hands. He even attacks mobile suits from the ground in the village. He shoots that rocket at the one Zaku from underneath, hits the Zaku right in the groin. I guess Zaku's have weak groins because <laughs> <laughs> it, it knocked over That's that one Zaku. the legs join. <laughs> And there's no better example of him being resourceful than in the fight with Norris where he rips his own suit's arm off and then hits Norris with it. <laughs> that was pretty cool. There's no Maybe. training for that in Xeon. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't defend against that one. So yeah. Yeah, overall, I thought Shiro was a really enjoyable main character to have. He was a welcome change of pace from the different Gundam protagonists we've had up to that point. Again, this came out in 96, so there's, there's been a lot of Gundam protagonists after Shiro at this point now. But but back then, you would have had Amuro, Camille, Judo. I guess you would have had Bernie and Chris from um, right. Double 80, and then Ko Uraki. So I don't know. I, I really like Shiro compared to all those uh, all those people. I think he had an uh, attitude that was different enough from everyone else that really makes him stand out. Brian, you're really insightful. You hit the nail on the head. And let me tell you why. Almost all those pilots you named... To a greater or lesser extent, if we think about it, they're they're sort of reluctant pilots, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're generally put in situations where you know, oh, a Gundam, well, I guess I'm not the pilot it, or oh, I don't want to pilot it, whatever. Shiro is the almost the opposite. 
he's gung-ho about it. And like you said, he sees people in trouble. He wants to help. He's very pro- very different than a lot of the main characters and a lot of Gundams. And I think we know why, right, Brian? That's right. So we get to see his backstory in one of the episodes. And the reason why he, as he said in episode one, he, he'll drive the Zeon right off the Earth. He was present in the colony uh, in Island Ifish. I assume it's Island Ifish. When it got yeah. gassed by Zeon. And he watched people around him die from the, what do you call it? The double G gas? Is that, is that its yeah. actual name? The double G? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know if they call it double G or just GG gas. But, GG gas, yeah. yeah. The gas. You know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's a gas attack. <laughs> <laughs> and this one was actually pretty brutal. And I think you brought this up in our origin episode, Isaac. So in this show, we see Azaku, like the, the gas, the gasser Zaku. Can I call it the gasser yeah. Zaku? Has the gas sure. gun. <laughs> that shoots like a gas dispersal thing into the colony and it sort of rains down upon everyone, uh, which is not how we saw the gas come in in the origin anime. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Shiro witnessed that and a guy died right in front of him. You know, blood just started pouring out of the, the guy. He was watching uh, his face and Shiro was lucky enough to be in a normal suit. Don't know why he was wearing a normal suit, <laughs> full helmet and everything. <laughs> but um, Was that a Federation military normal suit? It looked like it sort of... Did you, did you think it looked like a civilian one or a military one? No, it was definitely military. Yeah, okay. it, was, it was clear he was in the military. Then, or at least I took it. I took away from it that it was clear that he was in the military at the time. Okay. Yeah, I just assume Shiro went through that traumatic experience, obviously. He literally watched people... God, that, that man's like fingers bled as he was like scraping Shiro's face, face visor, right? Yeah. I don't know if that meant the man like cut off his own fingernails scraping his face. But, um, yeah, that would clearly, I, I imagine Shiro had many sleepless nights after that, and it was really uh, a formative moment for him to take on Zeon no matter what. That's his only goal in life. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Gundam is a, definitely a show where at times both sides, the Federation and, and Zeon, will be painted in maybe not the best light, right? There mm-hmm. are examples on both sides, some more extreme than others. But what Shiro sees for the most part in this show definitely reinforces his opinion, I think. Um, you know, there's that time when there's Zeon soldiers who have taken a village captive and they will not let this mom take her baby to see a doctor in the next village who, in the, and I think the, the baby has a fever. And then they shoot at her. And I, I, I wasn't clear if they shoot her and kill her but or if they just shoot the ground like near her to make her go away. But... Uh, that was pretty brutal. And then, you know, the whole everything yeah. we just talked about that happened in Kiki's Village. Granted, the Captain Ryer is kind of right. a jerk. Um, but Kind of. <laughs> well, he's definitely a jerk. I know I'm biased, but goodness, <laughs> kind of a jerk. No, I mean, he's definitely a jerk. But that's just, that's one guy, right? Versus yeah, there's a lot of these Zeon people doing bad things. So I, I don't see Shiro's opinion, uh, you know, turning around uh, no. anytime soon. Other than his when he adopts sort of his anti-war stance, right? So, there you go. Yeah. Which aligns, again, with the, the Vietnam era. Shiro's a great guy. He'd stop me in my tracks the moment I'd start talking about Xeon. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on there, Isaac. Yeah, he's like, Isaac, it's like, I'm not going to punch you or <laughs> throw this beer at you. I don't know. Uh, who's next on the A-team? 
Next is his love interest. Shio's love interest is Ina Sahalin. She is a test pilot in the Opsilus program. Um, <laughs> in the case of Xeon nepotism, which Xeon loves to do, she's actually the sister of the head scientist of the program. So that's why she's the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> She meets Shiro in space, though, in the first episode, and that's to an extent their love is kind of what kicks off the the story. They kind of work together to survive in space after fighting each other and realizing that they'll essentially die if they don't get help. And from there, that single moment they met, um, they end up going off into different directions, but meeting again and again during this whole obsolete crisis down in uh, the South Pacific. Ultimately, their love grows, and despite their polar opposites, factions fighting each other during the one-year war, they fall in love. Ultimately, at the end, I'm glad to say that they get a rare happy ending in Gundam. They do. They do. They do get a happy ending, and a, and a uh, child on the way. Yeah, that's right. Got a little bun in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I generally liked Ina. Uh, I thought she was... Um fairly good character even though like you said her and shiro meet up again and again but we definitely don't see as much of aina as we do of shiro yeah. so I, you know aina is inherently not as developed uh, as shiro is by the end of the show but i still think she was a, a pretty good character she had a very like 90s cheesy line in the first episode you know when they when they uh, blew up the ship with the with the missiles she goes it does look like fireworks and then they like you know hugged and i was like yep <laughs> this was the 90s for sure i bet that line killed back then i'm, I'm sure the, the voice actress was like really i have to do this and I'm like yes <laughs> I'm like, oh shira <laughs> a combat pilot would say this <laughs> She has some really good standout moments in the show. You know, she, you know, it's been a while since I watched the show. So when I rewatched it this time out, and as Shiro sort of kept saving Aina, I was like, oh, I hope, I hope we don't get to the end of the show and and Shiro saved Aina the whole time, and Aina never really did anything. And she did end up saving Shiro when they were in the the snowish area. Yeah. Um. So that was that was really good to see. And then she had that good moment at the, at the end of the series. Uh, where she stood up to the Federation, she got out of the Opsilus cockpit to prove, uh, her, you know, her offer for the truce. And, you know, she has that really good line, you wanted a fight, well, here it is. And uh, Cartoon Network used that on, like, all of their bumpers for this show. So uh, the voice actress <laughs> did it. She she really nailed that line. I thought that was good. And that was when the Kurgan blew up and, you know, she was going <laughs> to retaliate. So That's when she earned her place in your list of favorite characters. Favorite pilots, <laughs> too. Well, I don't know if she's one of my favorite pilots, but... <laughs> damn great i mean she had to go through so much stuff using a prototype <laughs> yeah uh, although yeah that said she she continually destroys her prototypes i'll say that <laughs> in her defense i mean the, these tests are clearly being interfered with by the federation <laughs> yeah i don't think there's anyone out there who's had that many prototype test flights interrupted by a squad of gundams yeah and makes it out too you know that yeah she's that's that true good. <laughs> and you know what Something I noted in my notes, she is on the short list. She might be the only person on the list of Xeons in the One Year War who pretty much switched sides. Yeah, that's true. I can't think of any others no. right off the bat. I mean, there was probably... Um, yeah, it started on the Xeon side and moved over. I don't think we get that a lot unless I'm forgetting no. something big. Maybe it's, someone in like the Zeta-ish era that I'm forgetting... Uh, but that's not one year war. That's not Zeon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's true. So good on her for, you know, fighting for peace, ultimately trying to save lives, her own peoples. 
it didn't work out but uh, <laughs> she gets an a for effort <laughs> oh and do you think shiro and Ina's romance is definitely i'll say consummated uh in the snow when they when they take the i'll say the bath in the in the warmed up water from beam the saber hot spring the, yeah the, <laughs> the hot spring in the middle of the snowstorm do you think that the writers for the first fantastic four movie got their idea from from this show oh god i don't know probably <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Positive. I mean, hot springs are kind of like you know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, what I'm talking about though in that in that movie in the first Fantastic Four movie when Human Torch like takes the two women away from the battlefield and he ends up in the snow and he 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 melts it and creates like a, a spa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it. <laughs> this was the first Fantastic Four for our yes. listeners. This is the one that had Chris Evans in it, Michael Chiklis. I forgot the other guy's name. Oh, Jessica uh, Alba. Jessica Alba. Ian Griffold. Yeah. Eowyn Gruffold, whatever. Oh, Eowyn. Oh, my bad. Sorry, Eowyn. It was a very campy Fantastic Four, so this fits <laughs> very much in that Fantastic Four. This wasn't dark, gritty Fantastic Four. <laughs> <laughs> I assume anyone in production of a comic book show probably is familiar with at least some anime. <laughs> so yeah. You yeah. might be right, Brian. <laughs> I'm just saying, Shiro did it first. Yeah, Shiro did it first. Yeah, he did, didn't he? <laughs> we can put the pieces together. I will say I like that too about Ina that you know she didn't have like an oversexed design. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like uh, if the show was made today, then maybe yeah. her suit would have like cleavage or something or something ridiculous like that. Um, which not to say there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think that fits in the tone of this show. Yeah, I mean she's in a Xeon pilot suit. You know, there's not unique proportions. It's not a it's not a female suit or anything like that. She's in a a Xeon pilot suit, and this came out after after Double A Three and. Her face and her hair, in a way, they kind of remind me of Nino Purpleton, in a way. So I wonder if, on some level, someone on the design team said she's going to be a response or a rebuttal to everything that was wrong with Nino Purpleton. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's just yeah. this solid. She's a solid pilot. You know, she stays calm under pressure. She fights for what's right, and yeah, she's just she's pretty awesome in terms of uh, in terms of characters in the story and also pilots overall. And she she rises to the occasion at the end and acknowledges that you know her brother, Guinness Sahalin, must die. <laughs> oh, Spe- speaking <laughs> Here of Guinness, we go. get ready, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> speaking of Guinness, what are your thoughts on Guinness? You know, Brian, <laughs> when you're building a weapon, you're under a lot of stress. <laughs> oh, are you? <laughs> Sometimes that stress causes you to do things like killing your your entire science team, <laughs> or but, but or why dest- destroying re- your own retreating troops <laughs> because oh, their their leader was pretty rude to you at a at a classy party you were hosting. <laughs> Guineas has got a lot of problems, man. Let, let me let me just say so. One thing I didn't realize is in the, when we first meet Guineas, he seems fairly normal, just kind of this noble looking Xeon dude is real tall got the blonde hair going um but they did mention like oh i think ina says did you take did you remember to take your medicine and that's like your first like uh-oh this guy needs medicine this is something yeah. must be wrong with him no offense to anyone out there who takes daily medicine you should definitely take your medicine but yeah it, it, it doesn't come up in the literary sense unless it's really important so then as the show goes on ina goes missing several times and uh you know he sort of shows less and less concern about ina's life his own sister as she's not found or, or, you know, as Norris is searching for her and Norris is kind of like, you know, we will find her, sir. And he, and he kind of doesn't really 
respond. And then, like you said, we find out that he's been given his his team of engineers and soldiers some, uh, I guess, some drugs to make them work longer or faster, uh, which I yeah I assume is some some form of like you know uh, amphetamines or something. Yeah, Ina looked at the bottle, right? But they never really show us what she saw or what it was specifically. But based on her horror, I assume whatever they were being given would not only keep them awake and not allow them to sleep, but, you know, cause some type of horrible disease later on in life or something. I think they even said, like, rations were low or something like that, right? So maybe it takes away your need to eat or something. So Yeah, yeah. nothing good was going to come of that for sure. No. And then, But you know like, what, Brian? <laughs> Was the weapon completed? I rest my case. <laughs> the weapon was completed. But why did he kill his team? Don't you want to make more obsolescence? I think <laughs> if I could put myself into his head, into Admiral Admiral Sahalin's head, let me let me try to piece this together. Maybe he thinks that the base is about to fall and they're going to be captured, right? Because those people weren't going to go on the Zanzibar. I think the Zanzibar is only for Yuri's troops. Oh, that's true. Okay, so, maybe because if mean, I don't, if I don't look, if I don't get an explanation for this, that makes sense, and maybe that, maybe that's the explanation. This is going on the list of things that I did not like about this show. As, I do as not see. As the young advocate, I must say, you know, this might be standard operating procedure, right? These people not only built the weapon, but if they're captured, they might be able to tell the Federation under torture even um, how to take down the obsolus, how to shoot out of the sky. You know, before it gets to uh, Jabrow. So, not not the type of people you want falling into Federation hands. So, he might have been following instructions in the event that, yes, things are completed, you know, kill them. Yeah. Okay. All right. I yeah. will accept your Xeon yeah. apologist uh, also, explanation. I mean, not to say that these people are better off this way, but if Xeon loses the war and these people clearly contributed to the building of a, a super weapon, I think they might be executed for crimes against <laughs> humanity, right? That's probably true. That's probably so, true. So, I mean, if, if you're going to be executed, you might as well do it drinking champagne. <laughs> <laughs> but I must say, yeah, this guy's, he's a bit of a nut. He, he <laughs> loses it. I feel like if he was calmer at the end, maybe if he took his medication, he would have been able to uh, handle the situation better. But he didn't play it as well as he could have and <laughs> you know, managed to get out of there. If I don't know. If he if he just zipped it out from there and headed straight to Jabro, I'm not sure the Federation could have stopped him, right? No, I mean, what are they going to send after him? Those, yeah, those like crappy planes? Yeah, some of those jets or bombers the, they have. This, like, I think they're called the saberfishes. Yeah, those yeah. never work out gonna, well. They're not going to catch up. You know, The only hope, I guess, would be that um, a Jim Sniper gets off a shot. But anyways, back to Sahalan. <laughs> uh, he was a pretty good villain, I felt like. But Really, no redeeming qualities. Um, it would have been one thing if he really cared for Ina, and you know, throughout this series, they showed that. But I think he more personified um, what's bad about Zeon, just the focus on destruction and death, almost for no reason when you don't really have to. Yeah, I agree, and I think yeah, when your sister decides to kill you, yeah. you probably didn't do a good job in life. I must say, his death was pretty great, though. That's a <laughs> it was. The cockpit yeah. punch dump. <laughs> Shiro punched him with a Gundam. I can't think of many other people that have died from a Gundam punch. No, it's pretty rare, especially in a cockpit. <laughs> and his cockpit was open, mind you. 
man, Zion needs to like really drill that into anybody. Like you just don't open it when you're flying. If there's a battle, there's no need to open it. Close your cockpit, people. Lock it up. <laughs> oh, all right. Who's next? Should we go back to the eighth team? Let's do it. Let's go down. I feel like to an extent they're all in equal standing. They're all good secondary characters. You pick one, Brian. All right, let's start with Sanders. Sanders the Reaper. Sanders. Oh, God, that poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we first meet Sanders in, in space. He's the he's the person that uh, Shiro saves in the ball, uh, which may be one of the, the, the most heroic acts in Gundam history. And uh, I thought that was a good way to introduce us to his backstory. You know, once he finds out that this guy who saved him is his new commanding officer or whatever the right military term is, uh, you know, he goes, oh, maybe my luck will will turn around. And then we we slowly learn more that his previous teams have died on every third mission that he's been on in the past. Uh-huh. And so he on the, on the eighth team's third mission, he tries to actually resign because he likes this group and he doesn't want them to die. But then Karen gets pissed and, like, beats him up and punches him uh, in the face and, like, <laughs> kicks him in the nuts. And then Shiro refuses to take his resignation. So this guy got denied on, like, all fronts. For yeah. uh, for being a quitter <laughs> and beaten by <laughs> beaten in front of his unit for it too. Yeah, Sanders yeah. was pretty cool. I liked that we had a character that was an older pilot and being commanded by somebody younger than him. I don't know. Normally the pilots all seem pretty young, right? They do. Yeah, we don't get too many older pilots. Well, I guess we get some older pilots in in double eighty three. But yeah, in the in the longer series, most of the pilots were. Sanders definitely seemed on the older side, and he does kind of. I guess in a way show that there must be multiple standards, right? Because the war's been going on for almost a whole year and people that survive combat, you know, against whatever horrors Eon has thrown at them and throughout the, the earth sphere feel pretty bad yourself. If you keep surviving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he's sure. kind of showing that despite the Federation's numerical superiority, they're still losing a lot of people this late in the war. And on top of that, he was a pretty good pilot. I think even before he had joined the A team, he shot. They said he shot down like six, uh, you know, six Zaku's or something uh, in his yeah. GM, which is which is pretty good. You know, I, I don't I don't know what Gundam considers the uh, the kill count for Ace pilot, but you know that's that's pretty sizable given that a lot of the GMs that we see last about a total of ten seconds in combat before they before, <laughs> before something just shreds them to pieces. He was a good anchor for the team. Uh, you know, he knew he knew a lot about combat and very mature. So I greatly enjoyed Sanders. Thought he was a good addition to the team. Yeah, we definitely need a sort of an older voice in the team. Otherwise, it'd feel kind of, I don't know, maybe Power Rangers-ish. Yeah. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. yeah. We can't have everybody in the team being young, you know. Right. It's yeah. Cool guy. Yeah. All right, who's next? Let's do Elador. <laughs> Elador. I think he was one of my favorite people on the team. He's clearly not meant to be a soldier. He really cares about music. And I guess was he drafted? Is that kind of the the <laughs> yeah. of his character? You Is know, that implied? I don't know. I have that same question for uh, Mikkel actually too. I'm not really yeah. sure how him and Elidor ended up in this war because they they both clearly would prefer not to be there, uh, yeah. but they are there, and it doesn't seem like they really have any other choice. So yeah, I assumed that they were either drafted or they were just. You know, they didn't really have any other monetary options, and so they just joined up. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But I really liked Elidor's design, too. He clearly dresses like somebody that's 
very taking taking a very casual approach to, to military <laughs> regulations. <laughs> I imagine if Ryer saw him, like he'd get chewed out or something, right? <laughs> but, yeah, um, his cut off sleeves and his long hair. His long hair, his bandana. It's just <laughs> it just doesn't fit. But I really liked how his interest in music or his passion for it really mixed in with what he actually does. So he's in the hover truck and what was really great about how they tied into how Magnofsky particles make a lot of tracking and um, detection difficult or impossible. So the way to get around that is go through something that Magnofsky particles can't really interfere with and that's sound. So the Howard truck would be able to just use vibrations um, to track where incoming mobile suits are. So his hearing really helped out with that and I thought that was a really cool tie-in and also a, a cool way of showing how combat's adapted to the world of you know, mobile suits and Minovsky particles, Minovsky uh, physics and science. Yeah, and I think he gave us a lot of the funniest moments in the show. So I know you said that you, you felt that part where him and uh, Mikkel got you know, tr- stuck in the village and they got captured yeah. and they, they, <laughs> they ended up getting out because they were fighting, which I actually thought was pretty funny. I thought that whole thing was worth it because at the very end of that episode, like you said, he's a musician and, and the, the reason he's so upset at that episode is his song is finally going to get played. Yeah. Or it's probably going to get recorded, <laughs> but he gets captured and he thinks he's yeah. going to die before he, before he gets to hear his song. And so at the end of the episode, you know, he gets hurt and they send him away uh, to like, you know, the hospital or at the rear line or whatever. And then uh, the team is sitting around and on the radio, they hear his song and the DJ says that the song was requested by Elidor himself. And so the team cracks <laughs> up because he requested his own damn song so that he could hear it on the radio. <laughs> really humanized the team. They really came together at that moment. So, yeah, I think him and uh, Mikkel were, like you said, for whatever reason. Okay, the Federation clearly must know that, like, okay, some people should not be piloting mobile suits. So that's why they stuck the two of them in the hover truck. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, yep. yep. <laughs> they would probably fall apart piloting a, a GM. <laughs> well, there is that one episode where they make Mikkel pilot the Gundam because he screws up so bad in the hover truck and he's all upset. How, speaking of Mikkel, how about Mikkel? Man, when I saw this initially, I thought Mikkel might be too young to be in the military. He's animated to look very young, like maybe intentionally. Like, How old do you think Mikkel is? I think I read, but do you know? Uh, I don't. What's your Let's guess? Look it up. I would guess he's 18. Mikkel is 18. Yeah, so, it must have been his 18th birthday <laughs> when he yeah. joined because, good Lord, he looks young or maybe just short. I like that he was a complex character. It was more than just, you know, the cowardly member of the team or, you know, the young man on the team that doesn't know anything. He actually really grows as a character as the series goes on. Yeah, and he becomes an alcoholic at the end <laughs> when, <laughs> when BB dumps him and has, a, has someone else's kid. So... <laughs> Yeah, that that backfired, but I I hear that's common in the military, or at least not unheard of. <laughs> Poor Mikkel. He made me laugh quite a few times, though. In in episode one, he you know he writes this whole letter about how Shiro went out to go get himself killed, and then they can't find Shiro. So then he writes his letter and says that Shiro died, and then Shiro comes back and he goes, "Oh, now I have to rewrite my letter." <laughs> um, and then while he was like a fun character to have, he was always pretty bad at his job. When he was in the hover truck by himself, he continually failed to pay attention to certain things. He was slow at doing things. He like blew up their drone that they were trying to practice on. 
And while I was watching it, I made a note to myself that, that said, you know, Mikel's kind of an idiot or, or like bad at his job. <laughs> and then like a few seconds later, it was it was while I was watching that episode where they're practicing to hit the obsolescence in, in the valley. And he right after I wrote that down, he complained that they they treat me like an idiot, which made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sucks. Sucks for him. that BB dumped him. But yeah, I feel like as a character, he worked a lot well when he was with Elador, like the two of them probably weren't as good characters on their own but together they made a lot of good scenes and um yeah they were very well done as whoever decided to design their characters and uh put them in the hover truck together <laughs> yeah agree yeah. they were they were welcome additions to the team speaking of hover truck i think my favorite thing about the hover truck was that that scene in the desert where they use it to hide their footprints i thought that was really clever <laughs> yeah it's like a little little sweeper truck and it just goes behind and <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Well, our our last eighth MS team member is Karen. Karen was a lot like Ina. She was a very strong uh, female character. She just, God, she kicked so much ass. <laughs> yeah, she was a straight How come boss. She's not pilot. Yeah, I can see her piloting her own unit. Like you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, she definitely deserves it. Yeah, she was. She was just a straight. Do not mess with me. I will hurt you woman in this, in this military, which based on what we saw is definitely, you know, male dominated. And I think she, she proved to be a very good pilot throughout the show. She's very capable. She was good at making quick decisions. She had a pretty sad backstory. Her, her husband died. He was a surgeon. And I thought they revealed that in a good way after uh, Karen helped patch up Elidor. They wondered, Oh, good thing. Karen knows how to do this. And then, I thought that was a good natural way to reveal something like that and gives you a little insight into why she's such a hard ass. Do you remember why he died? Like, did they say it was Xeon? Uh, I can't remember. I no. think I think they did say it was in battle, but Xeon's for hurting everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the eighth team is no fan of Xeon for sure. I guess not. They just need to hear him out. They just need to hear Dagwin's speech. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Elidor and Kent Karen ended up together? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> And I think they'd be a good match. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell this why, because they had such good banter back and forth. Um, she was pretty commanding with him a lot of the times, and <laughs> he kind of grudgingly went along with it. But I don't know. They all went through a lot together. I imagine. I hope they all stuck together. Um, Mikel's the one we only see at the end, but he says he's kind of bringing word from the rest of them. Right? He says he's going to tell them all how he's doing, and he brings well wishes from them. So I'd like to think so. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. That's the definition of opposites attract, and yeah. Eldor is definitely the some someone who needs like a someone to keep him in line, and I think Karen could could do that. So, all right. How about what do you think about our two Federation brass individuals, oh Captain Captain Ryer and Lieutenant Colonel Kojima? Ryer was very. He was everything that was wrong with the Federation, right? <laughs> he used his he used his influence and his power to make situations worse than they had to be. <laughs> he ulti- I mean, he ultimately pays for it in the end, yeah. But yeah, he was just really underhanded and not bloodthirsty, really, but w- wanting to do things in a more destructive way than needed to be done. Him and, uh, to an extent, Sahalan were uh, opposite sides of the same coin. Agree. Yeah. 100%. You know, although Kojima and Ryer both did not appreciate uh, Shiro, you know, helping out yeah. Ina, and they both questioned his loyalty to the Federation. Kojima just told Sanders to keep an eye on Shiro, 
but Ryer wanted Karen to execute Shiro if he if he did anything questionable. So yeah. you can tell the difference between the two men there, right? And then, you know, I was super glad at the end that we got to see the division between those two come about when Ryer tells him to go execute Shiro. But Kojima, you know, tells the eighth team, you know, don't let that happen. You're you're doing a new mission, so you know Kojima sort of disobeyed Ryer, and I thought that was a good a good act of you know, standing up in the fan. <laughs> so may I also say Kojima left that big tray at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He that what a wise perfect, man. <laughs> that's like I don't know. That's like quitting your job and leaving, and then like the building explodes or something, right? <laughs> yeah, he he saw the writing on the wall. It wasn't too yeah. hard to figure out that. The obsolus was going to fire at that yeah. at that station eventually. That's like giving your boss the middle finger, and then like you're in your car leaving, and like you look in your your rearview mirror, and um, the building explodes. <laughs> you're like, oh my god, what happened? Yeah, exactly. I was super glad that the obsolus took out Ryer at the end. There, it was a it killed him in such a cool way too. Alan will protect us, and then. <laughs> They're watching the mountain kind of melt away, and they're like, "Evacuate immediately!" And Ryder's like, "No, it's." <laughs> he's like, "There's no time for that," and then it just way. washes over. Like a lot of characters in Gundam, he's killed by a white screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's killed by his yeah. own arrogance. Yeah, our, Kojima, forces, our yeah. forces will not be intimidated. Well, maybe it should have been. Yeah, just wait. Wait till the. <laughs> Wait till the pilot's actually down, and then say we'll we'll not be intimidated, <laughs> or at least go underground. Yeah, yeah, or something. I don't know. Does the big train need to be that close? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, as for Kojima, I really liked how he seemed like a commander. Well, I guess maybe commanders have to be, but he was really close to the front lines. Um, he wasn't really in combat, but it seemed like they really needed to spend maybe just a few hours to get to him and like have a conversation, right? Yeah, he came down there. He like broke up that fight. Yeah, I agree. He, he definitely never never felt like too far away. And yeah. I think that was to give us a sense of how he views you know his, his men. I think he appreciated their contributions much more than Ryer, right? Where Ryer just looked at them as, as pawns. I think yeah. there's... There's that uh, scene at the end where I'm talking about killing someone and Ryer goes, one more dead soldier won't make a difference. And Kojima, he, he takes takes offense to that. So, Yeah, um, I'd want to be commanded by Kojima. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I> totally agree. <laughs> yeah. A little grandfatherly, though. Like Age-wise, I always felt like, oh, Kojima would be in charge, but no, Ryer outranks him. Um, but yeah, Kojima's scenes always felt like he always seemed he came off as a reasonable authority figure, so I'm I'm not too surprised seeing that in uh, in the Federation side. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, let's head back to Zeon, and we're gonna cut it there for this episode. Next week, we'll conclude our review of the Eighth MS team with thoughts on the Zeon characters, including everybody's favorite Norris Packard, the Mecha, and our overall thoughts on the series. Please like, comment, and subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and on Twitter at Colony Dropcast. As always, keep those Minofsky reactors warm, and have a good week, everybody. Eleanor! Eleanor, speak to me! Eleanor!